Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Harriet Beecher Stowe was the most influential female author of her time after writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, an anti-slavery novel in 1852. The book became a bestseller and touched off international debate over ending slavery. She was born in Litchfield, Connecticut, and she became a best-selling author. She built, after she became a best-selling author, rather, she built a home in Hartford on Forest Street near Farmington Avenue. The 145-year-old house is still standing. It's a National Historic Landmark and has been open to the public since 1968. This week, the Stowe Center begins a year-long $3.3 million preservation project. Today, where we live, we'll find out more about the project, including how both private and public donors have stepped forward to keep the historic Victorian House Museum intact. Later in the hour, we'll look to Massachusetts and the town of Lenox to see how another historic house, Edith Wharton's The Mount, avoided closure after the 2008 recession. Preserving history is important, but one of the questions we had was how historic house museums stay relevant. How do they manage to stay open when costs are increasing and visitors may not be streaming through their doors? You can join the conversation. Have you visited the Stowe House in Hartford? If not, what's keeping you from visiting this historic house museum? Is it a lack of time or a lack of interest? We want to hear from you, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, WMP wmpr.org slash where we live, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. In studio with me is Linda Norris. She's an independent museum consultant. Linda, welcome to where we live. Great to be here. We are hearing nationally that, you know, fewer and fewer people are visiting historic house museums. Can you give us a sense of why that is? Well, I think there's lots of different reasons, and the reasons may be different for different kinds of houses. Um, one one of the tricks about historic houses is often when you visit, it's the same when you go back. So repeat visitation. But I think more importantly is the fact that historic houses are beginning to rethink the stories they tell. Not all of us are rich white men, <laughs> which is who the stories are about. And so I think as historic houses open up the stories tell broader, more complicated, more relevant stories to our own lives, that's when visitation can increase. But if we tell stories about like that chair, that particular leg, that is not necessarily going to draw an audience. And let's talk about the audience. Traditionally, are uh, who are the people that are going to historic house museums? Traditionally, the people going to historic house museums are white, college-educated, uh, 55 and above. And the other interesting part, another reason for the decline, is that the changing demographics of the United States, you know, fewer and fewer people, um, you know, whites make up less a majority of the population, if I said that right. And I think, right, again, broadening the stories that are told, you know, there's lots of houses who have begun to do new work about enslaved people who who lived and worked in those houses, all kinds of different things. So, you know, I think it's a combination of the stories we tell and a changing United States, um, both of which provide amazing opportunities for historic houses. 
You mentioned rethinking um, our story. In New England, there's lots of historic house museums. Uh, traditionally, are they supported by you know, local historical societies who are able to just cobble up a budget? I mean, how are they able to function? Many historic house museums in the United States and in New England, which probably has the biggest concentration of historic houses of any region, are really, they're the smallest of museums. You think of an art museum as somewhere with a larger budget and more resources. Historic houses are often run by very dedicated, passionate groups of volunteers. And that's another issue, right? Often a lot of houses got their impetus in 1976 with the country's bicentennial. That group of volunteers is kind of aging out. So it presents another issue about how you involve younger people uh, in historic housework. So there's a lot of change. So the change in the types of people going to the museums, the types of people who are supporting uh, these types of museums. Um, after the recession in 2008, I mean, did you see a lot of these museums closing up? Museums almost never close. Connecticut's old state house, to the contrary, <laughs> as I understand it, not being a, yeah. a And we did talk about that last week. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, they almost never close. They cut back on programs. They cut back on staff. They defer maintenance. Uh, but they don't almost never close. But that is an interesting challenge. If you, for many historic houses, then how do you survive? What do you do? Do you turn to earned income and rental? Do you revise your programming? Do you change your hours? Right? It's always interesting to me that museums are open when many of us are working. <laughs> I, you know, more evening hours, those kinds of things are changes that museums and historic houses can think about. So when a museum calls on you for help, I mean, how do you go in there and help them rethink that story? Ah, uh, I think my job is to facilitate rethinking. Uh, I'm actually co-author of a book about creativity and museum practice. So I think all of us can be creative and find creative solutions. So my job in a historic house is to really first listen to the staff or the volunteers who work there, but equally importantly to re listen to visitors. And that's really been an integral part of our work at Stowe House is really learning from what visitors at, and those people who don't visit, what they have to say. Change can be hard. I mean, how do you, I mean, people can say, well, we'd like for you to come in and, and help us uh, rethink our mission and ways to interact better with visitors. But is that a hard thing for people to do once it's on paper? Uh, it's, change is always hard, right? It's, it's always hard. Um, the Stowe Center was uh, a really great client in a way because they already had a really important social justice mission in addition to their preservation mission. So they already had that kind of in their DNA, which is, you know, where your mission kind of lives. But what part of what I try and do is work with organizations through a process of prototyping and conversation and experimentation. So before it's on paper, you've had a chance to actually see and kind of feel the change, see the impact on, on visitors. I want to bring into the conversation Shannon Burke. She's Director of Education and Visitor Services at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. And again, the independent museum consultant that's here, Linda Norris, has been working with the Stowe Center. So Shannon, welcome to where we live. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So when did this begin, this idea of um, not only preserving the Stowe Center and the Stowe House, but changing the, you know, how you interact with the community and the visitor experience. When did that all begin? Oh, a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, it's, it's been a, a really uh, 
thoughtful process that the Stowe Center entered into. Um, we were really encouraged by the success we are having with one of our public programs called Salons at Stowe, um, a community program that brings together people for um, discussions on issues that were relevant to Stowe that still persist, things that still need our attention. And we um, saw how we could bring people together for these kinds of important conversations focused on um, everybody identifying solutions, not just talking about the problems, but really making history relevant. So it wasn't just about the past, but how it connects to today. And when we looked at all of our programs, we started making shifts in the way we did author talks and the way we um, presented our school programs. But the one thing that was really lagging behind was our house tour, our most popular program. And so we thought we really had to rethink how we told that story and that it wasn't about all of the all the stuff in the house, but it was more about the ideas. And so we really thought the best way we honor Harriet Beecher Stowe is not to put her up on a pedestal and talk about all the great things that she did, but it's to continue her work. And so we use her story to really try to inspire others to emulate her commitment to social justice. Can you tell us more about Harriet Beecher Stowe? Sure. Um, She was an amazing person, a woman who um, was living in a time when really women had little to no voice, and so writing was her outlet. Um, She Uh, was somebody who really um, identified with the plight of enslaved people. Um, She uh, had the misfortune to lose her young son um, to a cholera epidemic. And it was then that she really felt she could identify with the enslaved woman on the auction block who has her young child torn from her arms. And that's where she felt um, compelled to write Uncle Tom's Cabin and really changed the way people felt about um, slavery and galvanized uh, public sentiment around the abolitionist movement. So who are the people that, you know, come and visit the Visto Center? Uh, we're, we're fortunate to have a, a very diverse audience in pretty much every way you can measure it. Um, we have a, a great um, uh, um, audience from right within our state and also beyond, 11% uh, being an international audience. So um, Stowe's reputation is often um, larger outside of our country than it is here. Um, while she was the most famous woman of the 19th century, um, not so much today. So that's part of our charge, too, because we're all so passionate about what she did and sharing that with people. If you have people coming from all around the world, you know, why raise all of this money and embark on this preservation project and, and rethinking your mission? Well, because, um, as, as you mentioned earlier, we've been open since 1968, and uh, very little had been done to the interiors of the house. So it's worn. There's a lot of foot traffic um, over that time, and carpets need to be replaced, and wallpaper needs to be done. And a big part of our mission is preserving Ho- Stowe's historic home and, and you know making sure that it's there for future generations to see. And the story, we, we spent a lot of time interviewing people, doing community conversations, focus groups, and asking what the audience wants. Um, what did they want to do in the Stowe House? What did they want to know about her? And it was really the demand from our audience that compelled us to do this. I'm speaking with Shannon Burke, Director of Education and Visitor Services at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Uh, This week, a year-long preservation project begins um, in Hartford at the Stowe Center. And we're asking a consultant, a museum consultant who's in studio with us, about the importance of finding new ways to engage with the community. Uh, That consultant's name is uh, Linda Norris. And I wanted to turn back to you, Linda. Um, When uh, Shannon was talking, she said there was lots of uh, discussion in the community focus groups to find out what what people wanted to experience when they would go to the the Stowe Center. So what was the old way of the tour, and and how will they move towards this new way of looking at um, this gem in the community? 
So the the old way of the tour, um, which is hard to remember now, <laughs> I have to say, uh, was really object-based. This is a chair that's this old and a kind of biography, right? Harriet did this when she was whatever. And we found in some of our earlier, earliest conversations with visitors, we actually asked two questions that really guided the whole project. Um, one, we asked people what they would do in the house if they could do anything. We did have one little girl who wanted to play soccer, and we were <laughs> unable to make that happen. But a lot of people said, you know, I'd like to be able to sit and read. You know, it's a house. She's an author. So that makes sense. But the other question that was really still, to me, several years on, remained so meaningful. We asked people, if Harriet Beecher Stowe were standing in front of you, what would you, what would you want to ask her? And people, a huge percentage, like 80% of the people we asked, asked some variation of, how did you find the courage to write this book? That's a great, that's the kind of question that museum consultants wish we could come up with all the time. Visitors are really smart. And they really want to engage in that issue. And what we've, as we've dug deeper, the subtext in that question really is, how did you find the courage? So how do I find the courage? Right? That's really, I think, what that question is. How can your life inspire me to do more? And that's really what we've found is that people, they want to have conversations. And the house tour now provides opportunities for Real conversations between people who you might not have never met before, but you get to have a, a, a real meaningful conversation with. And that's in short supply in this country. Any uh, unique parts about the Stowe Center that you think other museums should emulate? I mean, the idea that you're looking at uh, programs that are dealing with social justice and the um, opportunity to make change in communities. I mean, that's not something that all his, um, historic house museums can, can lean on, right? No, but I think I think any, particularly history museums, have to really look hard, you know, at the question of so what? Hmm. Why does this story matter? Why does it matter kind of emotionally and, and in a human way? Why does it matter to what our community is and how our community has changed? You know, uh, a colleague of mine told a great story about how a minister in her local community um, in Maryland had a you know, wanted to do a sermon about acceptance. And she came to the Historic Society to do research about issue, racist incidents in the community, you know, in the past and used it in her sermon. History museums and historic houses can be relevant in so many ways, but we have to listen to other people and give up, you know, what we think is, you know, I, it's hard when somebody says, but they need to know we need to listen to them better. We're getting a couple comments on Facebook. Uh, Fred is asking, uh, we don't have a presidential house museum here in Connecticut. Does attendance at presidential house museums correlate with um, our historic house museums here in New England? Ah, well, you know, there's some presidential house museums, Mount Vernon, right, where attendance is amazing. I'm guessing few people have been to, you know, James K. Polk or Miller Fillmore, or right? So presidents have their places in the pantheon. Um, but as well, all those places, um, Thomas Jefferson's ha several houses, Mount Vernon, also have gone through rethinking about how they tell their stories and what they say. 
Uh, Shannon Burke, um, has attendance been declining through the years, or have you noticed with the the social programs that you have that you're getting people in the doors? Yeah, our attendance has not been declining. Um, it's actually been going up, and that was uh, one of the things that people questions questioned us about at the beginning. Why are you doing this? You know, you don't need to. It's not like you're you're having a struggle with attendance, but. Um, you know, we've been we've been fortunate, and I think it's because we've made this shift over the last few years to really um, connect with people, to demonstrate um, the relevance that there's something for them at the Stowe Center. Uh, Steve from Facebook is saying that historic houses should be subsidized, and emissions should be free, and guides should be paid. Is that realistic? Um, we pay our interpreters at the Stowe Center. We think that's really important. Um, they do really hard work, and they do an amazing job. So, yes, we pay them. Um, and we also have a lot of uh, programs where we uh, uh, people can come to the Stowe Center for free. Uh, Linda, the, the question about um, these houses should be subsidized. I mean, in Connecticut, I mean, we've got looming deficits ahead of us. We're seeing nonprofits getting their funding slashed from the state. Um, so, is it a new way of looking at how museums can stay open where we're not focused on on the public assistance? Museums, honestly, have never received enough public assistance to totally exist on. No museum in the U.S. hardly receives enough. That's a private nonprofit, you know, if you're the Smithsonian. But even they rely on kind of fundraising. You know, our model is different than models anywhere else in the world. Um, you know, all these independent organizations so the kind of ongoing struggle to stay open and to be a sustainable organization is not new to anyone. Um, and it just – museum people are amazingly, I have to say, creative and inventive about all the different ways that that might happen. I kind of agree with Steve. I would love it if museums were supported in, in more critical ways and supported as a value by those who make policy. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to Linda Norris, an independent museum consultant. Also, Shannon Burke, Director of Education and Visitor Services at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. We're talking about historic house museums like the Stowe Center in Hartford to learn how they not only preserve a piece of historical significance, but also keep people of all ages and backgrounds interested in visiting during a time of financial constraints and plenty of other attractions and distractions. When we come back from the break, we'll learn more about the Stowe Center's preservation project and how the museum is trying new approaches to draw people in. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about historic house museums, including the Stowe Center in Hartford. This week, a $3.3 million, a million year-long preservation project has begun to safeguard the 145-year-old home and collections of influential writer and Connecticut native Harriet Beecher Stowe. In studio with me, Linda Norris, independent museum consultant who's working on the Stowe Center project. Also, Shannon Burke, director of education and visitor services at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. And joining our conversation now is Cindy Cormier, Project Curator at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Cindy, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having us. Before we talk about the preservation project specifically, um, we're getting another comment um, off Facebook from AJ who wrote, I had to turn off the car and get inside to work. I haven't visited the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center because of many reasons. Um, He doesn't know where it is. Is there free parking, cost, hours? 
He says, I can't take time off from work, yet I work in Hartford like New Yorkers who see the Statue of Liberty only when visitors are in town. What did you think about that comment, Cindy? So many people come to the Stowe Center when visitors are in town. <laughs> it's, you know, you don't take a day off when you, where you live and work, but when you go out of town, you go visit sites. So, but the Stowe Center has free parking. We're open every day of the week, 9 to 5, basically. Go on our uh, Facebook page or go on our website and you'll see the number of hours. And there's after work programs too. The salons happen after work just for working people in Hartford. So let's talk about the preservation project. A long time coming? A long time coming. Um, I've been at the Stowe Center for three years, but my colleagues have been working on this for 10 um, to raise $3.3 million and to plan uh, a preservation project of this extent, you had to think long and hard. Um, they have three buildings, 2.5 acres, what to do first. Um, and this is actually phase two of the construction project. They uh, did an amazing job in a $1 million project in an archival vault that holds a lot of the paper-based collections. So now we're on to the Stowe House. Uh, we've got an architect. We've got a construction manager. We've got subcontractors. The meeting, the pre-construction meeting starts tomorrow, and the site supervisor takes his office today. Uh, we'll be taking out all 44 windows. We'll be disassembling the HVAC equipment. We're going to install a fire protection and suppression system all of which will take um, about five to six months. You obviously are very passionate about your job at the, at the Stowe Center. Um, preservation comes with the cost, obviously. Was it forward-thinking 10 years ago where uh, the Stowe Center and its board could think about ways to get the private uh, sector involved to raise the money? Because it's not easy to raise $3.3 million. It's definitely not easy. And the Stowe Center um, is extremely thoughtful, and planning was critical. Um, they have a great case to make. You know, millions of visitors and been open since 1968. The, the interiors are worn. And they don't ask for money regularly. So when you have a project that's as thoughtful as this, as carefully developed as this, um, the state, the federal government, and private foundations have been very generous because they, they understand that this project will take us for the next 50 years. Um, it really will set us in a good place. And we all feel proud that our work will, will live long beyond us. So you're talking about um, preserving what's in the house, a lot of what Harriet Beecher Stowe owned at the time. That's, is that unique, Linda? Uh, every place is different. Some historic houses have, have nothing from original owners and still tell a compelling story. Um, other historic houses have some intact things. Some places have everything. You know, it's, a re it's an incredible range. And so where are all those, uh, that memorabilia and, and antiques? We have about 80% 80 80 of the stuff in the Stowe House, the, the collection, excuse me, in the Stowe House, is um, owned by the Beecher and Stowe families. And a large part of it is now being restored, stored remotely. We carefully packed sofas and chairs and teacups um, and stored them in a facility that's committed to storing uh, decorative arts and, and fine arts for museums. Another part of it, though, is in our archival vault. Our fine art collection has remained on property, so we feel good about that. But we also feel good about it being stored somewhere else. So the museum is still going to be open during the preservation project. Is that a challenge when people walk in and they don't see what used to be in the rooms? It's a big challenge. Um, but we have a visitor center, which is a carriage house from the 1870s. We have Stowe's house from the 1870s and another house from the 1880s. So visitors are going in all three houses right now to see a historic house completely empty 
you never get to see that. And to learn about a preservation project in progress um, is very, is a rare opportunity. And then they get also get to go into our bigger house called the Day House, the Catherine Seymour Day House, which visitors don't usually get to go into. So they're they're enjoying that too. Can you talk about the location of the, the Stowe Center? I mean, it's a diverse neighborhood in Hartford. Are you getting those people in your doors? That's an interesting question. Our neighborhood is an amazing neighborhood, um, and it's get, only getting more and more beautiful. They have a very active neighborhood organization. We're, we're involved with the Asylum Hill Neighborhood Organization. Uh, we're involved, involved with the South Marshall Neighborhood Alliance. So our staff participates in neighborhood conversations, and we partner with some of those organizations, the church across the street, for our salons. So we we have a lot of friends in the neighborhood. But whether the mom and little girl who live in the apartment across the street come over, um, we still have work to do in that regard, I believe. I'm speaking with Cindy Cormier, project curator at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Today we're talking about historic house museums. If you have a question for our guests, 860-275-7266, what brings you to a museum? What kind of museums are you interested in? And have you been to the Stowe Center? What are your thoughts? 860-275-7266. Now, Cindy, um, I was able to uh, get a a tour the other week, um, and we heard a lot about once the preservation project is completed, again, it's not just about putting in uh, all the furniture and the artwork um, that um, Harriet Beecher Stowe owned, but this idea of interpretive rooms. Can you talk about that? The work that Shannon and Linda have been doing with our colleagues has really made us rethink every space and how it furthers our story about uh, the reasons Harriet wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin and its relevance today. So, for example, on the second floor is mostly bedrooms. And you'd go from one bedroom to another bedroom, and here's another bedroom, and here's another bedroom. Well, those rooms we really decided weren't carrying their weight. Um, You know, one bedroom's enough. So where one of the rooms that was a former spare bedroom is going to be an exhibit space. We have a large collection of material related to Uncle Tom's Cabin, which never gets shown. So we're going to have a professionally designed exhibit space with beautiful cabinetry and lights and actually wallpaper uh, that's uh, period wallpaper that's reproduced that's Uncle Tom's Cabin wallpaper. So that room is going to be, I think, really different. Another space, which is going to be really different, which is much a smaller space, is going to be a multimedia space. People are going to come into a room that's going to have an audio-visual component and very few artifacts. One artifact, the table on which Harriet wrote the first few installments of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So you don't get that in historic spaces. Uh, uh, Something where you're immersed into this space and you hear a sound, there are going to be words from letters that Harriet wrote. We're quoting her. One of the things we realized is Harriet wrote a lot and she had a lot to say, but her words weren't coming out. You didn't get to hear her voice. And it won't be her voice on the audio track, but it will be her words. Um, So you'll get to immerse yourself with get into her brain a bit in that multimedia space. Linda Norris is an independent museum consultant who's been working with the Stowe Center. Linda, are these interpretive rooms unique? Is this the new, I guess, the new vision of these of museums across the country? Uh, there's lots of interesting experimentation going on in lots of places. Um, of this is one of them. So, again, but it is, um, I think here, uh, it's re- the idea that in a, in the home of a writer. Using the words, the power of her words and the power of words in general is so important and I think often neglected, in, interestingly, in my, my travels around looking at houses. So, you know, when people um, – when we 
prototyped in that space where you hear her words and then at the end you see the table, there's kind of an audible gasp, you know, which is really – the table had just been a table in a room before. It didn't have the power of this woman who's writing about how she's so tired of the smell of spilt milk because she had kids while she's trying to write and she wrote everywhere. And then all of a sudden she feels compelled to write and it's on that table. That's like a big dramatic moment, you know, that really gets people thinking about how do you balance things in your own life? What do you do? You know, in another space in the house, and this is something more and more historic houses are doing, in the parlor people are invited to sit down um, to look at various anti-slavery materials. And there's a conversation about it. And when I've seen those conversations, they're incredibly compelling because they're going from real primary source material. But what visitors bring, because we always have to remember that visitors bring their own experiences, right? What visitors bring is an under, you know, when visitors bring up Black Lives Matter or, um, you know, the political campaign or, you know, their own growing up, wherever they grew up, they bring all those things into what turns out to be deep, rich conversations. And that conversations, I think, is really the important part. I want to turn back to Shannon Burke again. She's Director of Education and Visitor Services at the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Shannon, can you speak more about what uh, Linda was talking about in terms of how the Harriet Beecher Stowe House speaks to the young people who are going in, in there and seeing the, the copies of the fugitive slave ad um, and seeing the faces of, uh, of uh, you know, slaves in pictures? I mean, what's their impression of a historic house museum here in Hartford? Sure. So I think um, um, you just, you know, coming coming in, uh, the um, impression or expectation might not be very high. And um, there's kind of, oh, a house museum. And um, and, and so this is a, a different way um, to connect with, uh, with younger audiences. And um, they've, you know, everybody's heard about slavery. They have some kind of point of reference, but may not have actually had um, close-up personal experience with some of the primary source documents that they get to see. Um, the very first time we prototyped this experience, which was um, scary because we had talked about it for a long time, um, we had a group of um, students who who um, were participating in the experience, um, and this young gentleman um, had picked up a wanted poster for a, a, a was for a runaway slave ad, and he was reading the description of the person. Um, the height of the person, the description of the color of, of the person's skin. And he kind of stopped in the middle of it and his, you know, you could hear him kind of catch his breath and, and composed himself and continued reading. And, and afterwards, um, when we asked him, you know, how did it make you feel to read those words aloud? He said, this, this could have been me. Um, you know, this person is the same height as me, that my skin color is the same. And I've always known that slavery was bad, but I never really thought about the individuals that were impacted in this way. And so to be able to to make those connections and make history real and come to life and, and then to see how it connects to where we are today um, is is really um, quite a profound experience. And Linda, that's the, that's the kind of impression that museums want to leave uh, visitors, right? So that they come back? So that they come back and that they that – they take it with them in some ways. One of the challenges of museums is evaluating what kind of impact we have, right? We don't, we don't have people for a whole year, right, the way schools do. We have them for an hour or whatever. And we don't know 
what happens, you know, a year from now when that teenager, you know, is in a situation where he thinks about what happened there. But that's we want them to come back. We want them to come back for selfish reasons, I guess. But even more importantly, we want them to take some knowledge, some experiences, some commitment to social justice future out into their lives in the world and to build upon what they what they learn it and experience. And I think it's really important what they experience at Stowe House, right? This was really uh, listening to that conversation about someone saying, oh, it could have been me, was incredibly moving and powerful. So I think historic houses have to think less about information and more about experience. And that would lend to the interpretive rooms, right? Cindy, about how you, you you stand in that room and it's not just about that's another bedroom. Right. It's a it's a multimedia experience. But Linda's comment about sitting in rooms, we do that in the kitchen too, just feeling like you're part of the home. You li- This house was lived in by people and you get to be in it and feel a little bit about what that might have been like. I think it's really important there are no ropes. <laughs> there will be no velvet ropes that you have to stand behind at Stowe House. And right when you think about a historic house tour, <laughs> you think you're behind a velvet rope. And so the idea of doing it differently I think is really important. And you know, more and more houses are moving in that direction. So those ropes were there, what, to protect the, the uh, historical uh, uh, antiques that right. were there? Right, of course. Right. And part of the responsibility is, of course, preservation, but definitely in Stowe House and in other houses that don't have ropes or have done away with ropes. Uh, people are pretty respectful. Right. And we find a way to the small, fragile things get put farther afield or in the locked cabinet. I mean, we're, we're, we're very responsible. You can do both. Care for the collection and invite your visitor in deeper. Um, and can you talk a little bit more, Cindy, about the, the community programs that the Stowe Center has had for some time? Um, that might be a better question for Shannon. Um, yeah, so um, I'd mentioned earlier uh, Salons at Stowe, which was really a program we started in 2008, which um, had a, a dramatic shift, I think, about how the way a lot of people thought about us or um, experienced us. And so we started seeing um, a different audience come to our programs, whereas before there had been a lot of traditional kind of lecture-type programs, author programs. And now we are talking about issues that were vital to people in our community. And we are looking at the historic perspective of those issues, but also um, the work that needs to be done today and bringing people together who were committed to identifying what some of the those um, solutions might be and working to create positive change together. Um, And so I think that really, again, was what um, uh, sparked our our desire to change what we were doing in the Stowe House because we knew that that audience was out there and that this was perhaps a a more compelling way to reach them um, in the house tour experience. And so we we changed up that that, um, kind of uh, format from the, the lecturing people to um, engaging them in conversation, making everything participatory so that um, as a as a uh, audience member, you were going to be a part of the program. Something that stands out about the Stowe Center uh, to Christina, who tweeted, uh, local historical organizations are dealing with declining support and they don't have that built-in narrative that the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center has. Yeah, we're, we're, we're fortunate um, that um, uh, Stowe uh, did such amazing things um, that um, – 
Uh, her story is so compelling that she was such a, a gifted writer that had that power to influence people. Um, our tagline is, her words change the world. And, and as um, Cindy and Linda were commenting, you know, that's one of the things that we really wanted to do with this new experience is to infuse her words into it, to um, make those connections, because a lot of the things that she was writing um, feel very contemporary. They're, um, you know, again, issues that we're still grappling with today. But I do want to say that I think any history museum can find a compelling narrative or set of narratives in their community. I totally... Stowe has a unique one. Uh, There are compelling narratives everywhere. There are narratives of coming to community, right? The conversation about immigration and refugees. We all came from somewhere, right? Except for Native Americans in this country. We all came from somewhere. Your community might have that narrative. Your community might have a narrative of love and loss. Your community might have a narrative of joy. Your community might have a narrative of resistance. Those narratives are in every community. You just have to look for them. I want to turn back to Cindy uh, before we go to break. So the preservation project, again, is underway. When will it be completed? Um, Expected to be completed by Thanksgiving, but I'm going to say Christmas. And then once it's all done, it will take a couple months to actually test the systems. We're installing new heating and cooling in this fire, this mist-based fire protection and detect, uh, suppression system. You want to make sure it works. So it's going to take a couple months to test it all uh, and make sure it's ready to go before we install, reinstall uh, the collection and, and wallpapers and carpeting. So the carpeting and wallpaper will be installed in the winter months and will reopen next summer. I want to thank Cindy Cormier and Shannon Burke of the Harriet Beecher Stowe Center. Also, Linda Norris, independent museum consultant. They've been working with the Stowe, she's been working with the Stowe Center as it rethinks the way it educates the public about Harriet Beecher Stowe and encourages social change. After the break, we'll hear how the Mount, a historic house museum in Lenox, Massachusetts, rebounded from closure and paid off millions of dollars in debt. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Thursday, we'll check in with Secretary of the State Denise Merrill after local primaries, and we'll ask her about a new way to register to vote at Brace Yourselves, the local DMV. Plus, WNPR reporter Harriet Jones is back from a recent trip to Britain. She'll be here to talk about life in the U.K. after Brexit. That's Thursday. Today, where we live, we're talking about museums. How often do you go to to a museum? There's so many to choose from. Today, we focus on historic house museums and new approaches they're taking to attract new visitors as well as connecting with community. Joining us on the phone now is Susan Whistler, Executive Director of The Mount. Susan, thanks for joining Where We Live. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you're in Lenox, Massachusetts. Can you tell our listeners about The Mount if they haven't heard of them, heard of it before? Uh, sure. The Mount is the uh, beautiful home and estate uh, designed and built by Edith Wharton, who is one of America's uh, greatest writers. Uh, she um, was born in 1865 and lived to 1937. The Mount is a, a property that she built in 1902. Um, she was from Upper Crust New York Society, uh, and her main stomping ground was Newport, which she loved as a child, but when she married, she found the social obligations too rigorous and oppressive. And so she retreated to the beautiful Berkshire Hills of western Massachusetts and built a a lovely estate, which we are fortunate uh, is still in existence and uh, open to the public today. Can you tell tell us more about her works and why she was such an influential author? 
Um, sure. She um, was um, actually wrote 40 books, over 40 books in 40 years. Her first book, um, which is still in print and still taught, was actually a treatise on um, architecture and design called The Decoration of Houses. And it was basically a diatribe against the excesses of the Gilded Age and the Victorian era, where everything was overstuffed, over-upholstered, over-curtained. And she said, we have to get back to classicism and simplicity. Um, Architectural uh, houses and structures need to be suitable, functional, proportional, and practical. And um, and so she built the mount um, really as a laboratory, sort of expressing her principles. But she's best known for her fiction, House mm-hmm. of Mirth, Age of Innocence, Ethan Frome. She wrote about the society uh, in which she grew up and was a very keen observer of um, really kind of the restrictions and social obligations and turmoils and conflicts that existed within that society. And um, she was hugely popular in her day. She was kind of the Stephen King in terms of um, her popularity. And um, a lot of the themes that she dealt with um, are still issues that we all deal with in one way or another. And so she continues to resonate um, with populations both here and, and abroad. I read that she uh, did not live at the Mount for very long. I know she uh, divorced her husband. Is that right? Yes, she built it in 1902, um, and I think uh, when she married her husband, Teddy, they had a grand old time traveling across Europe and uh, learning how to ice skate and taking road trips across the Italian Alps, but he suffered from a mental illness. Um, Probably we would call it bipolar today, and as her success as a writer grew, he became more and more unstable and probably insecure in his position. It probably was not a very good position to be in. And um, their marriage became quite turbulent. He had family in the Berkshires. And so when she decided to leave him, which was quite unheard of in her day, I mean, you uh, you did not divorce in Wharton's era nor in Wharton's class. And so when she decided to leave him, she had no choice but to leave not only Lennox, but actually she left the United States and sailed to France and, and never returned except to receive the, um, an honorary doctorate from Yale many, many years later. So what happened to the Mount, and how did it become eventually a national historic site? Well, uh, she loved the Mount. She called it in her memoir her first real home. And um, when she left Teddy, she implored him not to do anything until they had a chance to talk. And before her boat had landed, she received a telegram that he had sold it, you know, furniture and all. And um, so he sold it to a private family. It went through two private home families, and then it was bought by a a girls' school who used it as a dormitory. They had also purchased George Westinghouse's property, which was next door. And so it was used as dormitory and stables, and that was for probably the longest tenure of its existence, maybe 30 to 40 years. And it was the headmistress of the school that actually um, procured National Historic Landmark status. She understood the importance of the property and the understanding and the importance of its creator. Um, In the late 70s, the the school went out of business. The land was purchased by a commercial developer. Uh, The developer had big plans to pepper the property and and neighboring lands with um, over 140 condominiums. Uh, Fortunately, the developer went out of business, and um, the property was acquired by Um, a theater group, Shakespeare and Company, which is still in existence and currently in residence on a property just down the road. Um, 
at that time, an organization was formed to um, help restore the buildings, which were falling into great disrepair. Um, long story short, that um, that organization limped along for many years and then was the recipient of a nearly $3 million grant from a public-private federal program, Save America's Treasures, back in the late 90s. And that kicked off the restoration. Um, and so the building that you see today um, is... Uh, exist and um, survives largely due to great federal support, great um, state support, and most importantly, the support of thousands and thousands of individuals who have who have helped bring it to the place where it is today. I'm speaking with Susan Whistler, Executive Director of The Mount. It's a historic house museum that preserves the home and legacy of writer Edith Wharton. Susan, um, I understand The Mount ran into um, some financial problems could have almost closed after the recession. You know, part of the reason we're doing the show today is to talk about um, the, um, you know, why people should still go to these historic house museums and, and what is in it for them. Um, so can you talk about how the Mount has uh, rethought its story and how you've been able to communicate uh, better with the community um, with these financial problems that used to be there? Um, sure. It was 2008. Um, and uh, while the restoration was phenomenal, we did amass a, a, a huge amount of debt, almost about uh, a little over $9 million. And so it became much more than the institution could bear. And in March of 2008, um, uh, our lenders issued foreclosure notices. And so the notices went out. Uh, men in dark suits came and inventoried all the all the property that we had, it, it was very, everyone was let go. It was a very, very scary time. And, um, but we held on and um, fortunately uh, support uh, poured in from across the country. Um, we were fortunate in that Wharton um, is a beloved name, um, a national figure. And so uh, when the danger threatened us, um, we we were able to sort of elicit support from across the country. But it was a time where um, we had to start from zero and getting momentum. Um, we were like a, a huge maroon giant ship, really, uh, dark, silent, very, very depressing. And um, But we turned that darkness into opportunity, And but we had very little resources. And so the first thing we did was we took down the ropes uh, because we realized that better engagement with our community, uh, making inclusivity and accessibility a priority was uh, were the three keys to our survival. And so we took down the velvet ropes, um, allowed visitors to enter the house museum and uh, experience it as a guest rather than as a visitor who was to be instructed. And that was a, a transformational moment. Um, people stayed longer. They cared more. It was a much more intimate experience. And then we decided, you know, how are we going to create vibrancy in this great, massive home? And so um, we opened ourselves up to partnerships with many, many cultural organizations. I think right now we have about 40 partnerships, great institutions who do all everything from theater to music to outdoor sculpture to nutrition programs. We've got right now a, um, an empowerment workshop for women going on. And these are all great um, activities, and but they didn't really have a venue. And what we discovered is is that this beautiful historic setting is the perfect backdrop for almost anything that you can want to do culturally. And so we've kind of expanded our mission to embrace 
All Things Cultural, which is not a, a reach for Wharton because Wharton intellectually had a voracious appetite for just about anything, and um, and uh, and it's proven to be um, um, just an incredible thing. So one example would be jazz on the terrace on Friday and Saturday night. We get about 500 people, and people are spread all over the lawns. It's free. It's open to the public. Um, we are very um, committed to having um, a huge proportion of the, of our offerings free and open to the public because um, we understand that uh, money is tight for the average household. and. Uh, to get these people on property and to experience it, we have to make it accessible. And so, um, and I'm fortunate that I have a board that supports uh-huh. this. Susan, um, I've never been to the Mount, but it's a beautiful place. I imagine there's lots of weddings there. Does that help with operating costs? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we maintain our grounds and our house uh, at, a, at a very high level of care. Um, I mean, that's our, our responsibility and our obligation. Most house museums, you know, close at five. And so, our position was at five, we're kind of all dressed up with nowhere to go. And so it's very easy for us to then sort of transform the house into a wedding venue. And so we host about 14 weddings a year. It brings in about 150000 uh, Total cost is uh, to us to host these weddings. We have a very simple model. It's not great, uh, again, because we maintain the property already to um, – uh, to a very high standard, so it's it's a great it's a great revenue for us. So it sounds like you have found a balance between uh, finding a way to pay the bills, but also to engage the community. Um, and one we don't have a, a short time left, Susan. But one thing I thought was interesting: your program is is pretty unique in fostering writers and playwrights. Yes, we have a writers in residency program, which um, we began informally a couple of years ago. Um, we are open as a house museum just six months of the year, and then we do you know, programming on and off throughout the winter. But um, writers and other artists find it incredibly powerful and inspirational to be mm-hmm. in the space that Edith Wharton uh, or probably any writer created. <laughs> and so we, um, uh, we open it up to writers who need a place to write, and they find their nook, and they come and they spend day after day after day. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredible energy and and good for the staff and good for the writer. And we've now formalized that process. Mm -hmm. And so we hosted three writers last year from across the country. And we hope to do the same this year. And they'll come for a three-week or four-week residency sometime Mm -hmm. in early spring. Well, I want to thank you, Susan Whistler, Executive Director of the Mount, a historic house museum in Lenox, Massachusetts, that preserves the home and legacy of writer Edith Wharton. Thank you so much for your time, Susan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Our show today was produced by Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can continue the conversation on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.